Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by the author, journalist and co-founder of the Future Laboratory, Martin Raymond, who works with some of the Forbes 500 and FTSE 100 most innovative brands. He's published three books, The Tomorrow People, Future Consumers and How to Read Them, The Trend Forecasters Handbook, and Create, a look at future foods, trends, and upcoming changes in the hospitality industry. A fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts is currently working on his next book, The Trusted and the Damned, or How to Take a Big Company and Make It Small, Irrelevant and Pointless. Fantastic. Meanwhile, just to um, update um, anyone who, uh, by some extraordinary omission, um, isn't aware of uh, the Future Laboratory, um, they're one of the world's most renowned future consultancies. Um, as someone who's been um, around that world for quite a while, I'd say it's very clear they are not one of the world's, they are the world's most renowned future consultancies. There's lots of pretenders to that throne, and they shine like a beacon. Um, when they started in 2000, um, just Martin uh, and Chris and their wonderful dog Jasper. Uh, today they have offices in London and Melbourne and have worked with more than a thousand businesses in 50 countries, delivering foresight through a number of products and services, including their trends intelligence platform, LSN Global, and in person through their strategic services. So the Future Laboratory makes better futures happen for businesses. So Martin, Welcome. Oh, indeed. Thank you. I thought you said that um, for a moment we make bitter futures happen for everyone, <laughs> which could be the case at the moment, given the, the, the current crisis out in the world. Well, absolutely. A hasty rewriting of the, of the site uh, to uh, sort of reframe yourselves for the, uh, for the sort of current situation. Um, but, but before we get into that, by the way, just in terms of sort of um, uh, giving uh, the listeners a bit of a view on where you are. I mean, I know you, uh, you're in a, a, a wonderful part of the world at the moment. So go on then. What can you see out of your window? Well, actually, looking out the window, I can see the North Sea, um, quite a lot of cloud reflection on it. So those kind of great gray shoals that you get um, in high summer, or I guess on spring days like this, where you have, um, you know, some sunlight, a bit of dappling going on, uh, the most amazing shingle beach. So if you imagine that you're looking out onto this great um, linear expanse of beach and sky, which really, I think, uh, always makes me think about the opportunities you see in the future. So I, I kind of sit looking at horizons and I spend my days thinking about horizons and what sits beyond them. And today it, it's exemplary. I mean, it's literally a clear view right to the other side of the world. Well, at least to the side of Europe, the bit of, of the world I'm beginning to miss at the moment. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on by the way, so in, in terms of sort of you know just glimpsing the horizon and all, and all the rest of it. I mean, in terms of the, I mean, your path to where you are now. I mean, when I first met you quite a while ago, um, you were um, still are a, a, a journalist. At that point, I've seen remember working with people like the the Observer and the Independent on Sunday, etc. Um, so just talk us through um your background or yes, the repeatable well, I bits. I, I did, <laughs> you know, I started in journalism. And, uh, you know, once described by somebody as the last refuge of the desperate. And uh, I like to think that it was also the refuge of the curious um, and the, the, the kind of a person with a magpie mind. Because, you know, the great, I suppose, art and skill of being a journalist is that you can turn your hand to anything quickly and become an expert immediately and instantly forget that expertise uh, pretty much within 30 minutes of having to remember what you've forgotten. And I always think that uh, my entire life has been spent looking at different subject areas, you know, from, from for example, you know, local politics, uh, crime, uh, you know, arts coverage, uh, architectural writing, writing about photography, um, innovation. And really, I suppose at the time, what I was doing was putting together a collection of, of interrelated disciplines that eventually leads you to a point where you spot those great connections across cultures or those great connections across, um, you know, patterns within, um, you know, people's activities or movements. And then finally, when I, I started working in, in the fashion industry, um, I realized that in fashion, what people called trends and referred to as, as kind of trends were really things that were apparent in all sectors. And that's really when I started doing some research on, on you know, how trends came about. Uh, when we talk about patterns or anomalies or, or things like memes and that, what is it that we're actually recognizing? You know, are they accidental occurrences in the firmament, so to speak? Or are they, I guess, more staged and planned interventions that, when examined in a particular way, begin to show you the bigger pattern? Uh, that, and that pattern then eventually becomes a trend or a shift or a change in culture that um, has a much more, I suppose, ready and visible impact on, on, on kind of businesses and consumers and how we engage with them. Mm-hmm. Cool, nicely put. I mean, it's interesting in terms of sort of nicely put, but when I <clears throat> put out my last, has to be said, awesome book, uh, Influences and Revolutionaries, um, when I was doing the chapter on talking about so, you know, the big thinkers or you know, a range of big thinkers and catholic catalytic thinkers sort of through history and um across the 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 world of business in terms of their thinking impacts brands and i talked about sort of descartes and uh, to drucker to mazakuto to greta thunberg i needed someone to really give me a killer quote to kick the whole thing off and of course i came to you and and looking at actually that piece now when i was um when i asked you where does innovation come from And uh, excuse me, and it said, um, uh, I say here, so I interviewed an exceptional thinker, Martin Raymond, uh, to you, uh, indeed. Um, So, who outlined how innovation, the product of knowledge and insight, happens in clusters. And uh, sorry, happens in clusters and shifts in culture come in peaks or movements or periods in history. Knowledge, once unleashed, acts like a catalyst firing and flinging other ideas together. Thus, bridge moments are created that enable new levels uh, for new but associated ideas to grow. Nicely put, Martin, there as well it yeah, I mean, has to be said even if i say so myself or even if you say it yourself <laughs> um I, I think what what was interesting is that, you know if you think about um history and how changes came about and you think about business and how mm. change comes about you know there, there are two i guess um 
key points to consider. One is the innovator. So they were those people in history or in culture or art or science who absolutely um, uncover something that is so cataclysmic, so revolutionary, uh, so impactive, that it causes a ripple effect out from where the thing begins to where it can potentially end. But to, to kind of aid to that, and if you think about something like the Enlightenment, you know, the mm. Enlightenment wasn't just driven by thinkers. It was driven by letters. So you had people who did something. They then wrote about it. Other people wrote about it. And this exchange of knowledge and information kick-started that fire into a conflagration. So, you know, the thing can just be a light burning. And if nobody's talking about it and nobody's showing it and nobody is communicating, then the light and the fire continues to burn and just burns out. So the, what, what I also point out to people is that, you know, as well as looking for the innovators, you're looking for the early adopters, the connectors. So these are the people that uh, have fairly good open networks are um, socially mobile and engaged and are also curious and aware about how one idea that starts in one way can be communicated and changed and, and, and kind of metamorphosed into something other and something else. And I think that the, between those two is where I guess as a forecaster and in terms of uh, you know how our business work, they are the focal points of where the rest of a forecasting comes from. And, you know, historically, mm. that was the case. You looked for these people, and then you looked at who these people knew. And I think, the, you know, the, the, the great thing about um, the, the notion of networks, it's not a closed network or the people you know who will necessarily be able to help you. It's the people who know the people you know, who know somebody else you may not know as well that helps mm. you capture a new piece of insight that adds value to that moment of thinking so the the mm. i i guess um you know globally you're looking to see these things happening and i think what's curious at the moment is while some people are hunkering down because of you know covid19 and and everybody is talking about you know that terrible phrase putting things on hold or mm. staying safe and i kind of hang on a minute for the first time in modern history we have an audience who are all experiencing the same thing globally Secondly, it's changing and accelerating ways that we do things in ways that we should now be examining minutely to understand what will happen next. And thirdly, people are willing to talk about it. You know, it amazes me that I'm sitting there with, with, with kind of uh, clients and I say, well, you know, we're going to wait till this thing is over. Then we can chat to people. I said, now is the time. We are huddled around the campfire. We are enclosed. We are locked down. We are willing to talk. So again, this is where the moment of innovation will happen. You know, what is coming out of people's homes? What is coming out of the software they're building? How are these collaborations being used? What are you noticing when somebody arrives in your house and you think, well, that could be done better or more interestingly or with, with greater dexterity? So suddenly we're at the point of what I would call um, cultural or global innovation. And that's mm. it where everything kickstarts again. 2008, you remember? GFC yeah, yeah. happened then, you know, during the whole AIDS crisis, the, the, you know, kind of one of the biggest pandemics, 38 million people dying at that point, you know, since then. Um, you know, think about the changes that happened during that period. So we really should be looking at this as, 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 as innovators and forecasters as a positive shift in the culture rather than the scene as this dead weight 
that we need to shuffle off and get on with the, you know, the the, the kind of um, normalcy that we all seem to be craving. Mm. Again, nicely put. I remember in, um, I think in your first book, in the, or one of your first books, in the Tomorrow People, you talked about, um, you know, key peak moments or periods in history. Um, and again, there, I think you, again, you, you just pointed to the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the modernist movement, consumer society, the information age, new economy, knowledge economy, and, and the creative economy as being, again, sort of, you know, big moments that um, actors acted as genuine catalysts for change. Um, I, I, can I just ask, just in terms of, sort of just one thing, um, sort of butt in, but um, does it not frustrate you? Uh, I've always wondered this, that... Um, the world of um, sort of, you know, trend forecasting, trend analysis, futurism, call it what one will. As I mentioned earlier on, there are many, many pretenders to the throne. Uh, and quite frankly, um, if you sort of, you know, walk through Williamsburg or Dalston or whatever, um, you, you can't sort of, or sort of Kreuzberg, you know, uh, you trip over about 50 so-called futurists every sort of uh, every 10 minutes. Um, does it not annoy you that um, there's a ton of people out there saying that they do what you do. <laughs> you know, I, I, in some ways, I'm relieved because I no longer have to explain what I do when somebody asks me a question. Because if I say that I'm a, you know, a, a futurist or I'm a, you know, a foresight strategist um, or, or a trends analyst, they go, oh, okay, great. And they're really keen and interested. I remember, you know, the first time explaining, actually, I was on the way into to, um, America and I was stopped by uh, one of the security guards and taken aside. Obviously, I look suspicious. Taken aside, and uh, he, he, you know, he asked me what do I do, and I said, I, you know, I was um, a forecaster. And he paused, and then he kind of tilted his head to one side, and he called me over into a corner, and he said, "Look, um, do, do you mind helping me out?" And I said, "Sure." And he held out his palm, and he said, "Look, can you tell me what I'm going to be doing next month? Because I'm about to get married, and I'm not sure if this wedding should go ahead." So he had this idea that he thought I was a fortune teller. And, Fantastic. Uh, that's, that's as close as he got to understanding, you know, my kind of relationship with, with the world I lived in. And I realized in some ways you are still seen as a fortune teller. And I point out to people that, you know, economists who we give far more credence and credibility to than they actually deserve are seen mm. to be, you know, uh, good at the job, trustable, uh, you know, people we should believe in, where I still get to this day, and this is where I think it's more interesting, when I'm dealing with businesses, they ask me for proof that my forecasts are accurate and proof mm. that they will be accurate. And I always point out to people, you know, the future hasn't happened. So therefore, the best way to determine your future is to create it and execute it. And I think if you do that using certain kind of, of, of processes and methodologies, there is a great chance that you will get it right. But I can't predict the, predict the future, uh, nor can anybody else. You know, I always I always think about you know the the economist challenge. I'm more than happy and have done in the past to go up against an economist because to this date and in this world, I've never met an economist who is at all accurate in the forecasting. Why? Because it's based on rationalism. And as anybody ever knows, looking at history, history isn't driven by facts. It's driven by adjectives. You know, culture isn't driven by facts. It is driven by adjectives. It's driven by irrational thinking by emotional interventions and by psychological intrusions. And these are all of the things that a good forecaster embraces and thinks about before they look at the facts. 
you know, a fact will tell you a simple thing. There are X number of people who don't like Y product. And my question is why? And what are the circumstances and the context? And for those who do like something, what about those who don't or those who are unsure? And that's where you find the beginning of a new trend or the push into a new territory. So really the the, the um, sense that the forecasting has become so ubiquitous is great because, you know, volume shakes out its own value. So it's really a volume numbers. You're not getting value numbers. And you're also getting, you know, forecasters, uh, who are sitting on boards, sitting in governments, you know, sitting with think tanks and are being seen, you know, in terms of, the, of their insights and value as more valuable than the economist who usually, you know, tells you what you know and states the blindingly obvious and then mm. seeks to get it wrong and gets it wrong, as we discovered in 2008, on quite a cataclysmic and dangerous and, uh, you know, hugely impacted scale. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and in terms, um, in terms of the sort of things that you've been up to recently. So, I mean, naturally, I'm sure, like all businesses, you know, um, uh, well, to state the obvious, obviously, you haven't been sort of physically um, uh, in the office inverted commas. But um, in terms of um, what you're up to, um, up, you say just before um, the pandemic broke, what were the Future Lab um, about at that time? What were you doing? What sort of reports did you put out, or things yeah, that you were looking into? Sean, it's been really interesting because we had started um, every decade, we we tried to do a decade forecast. So we kind of go, let's look at the big picture. And obviously, again, you know, you know, the future hasn't happened. But as somebody said, there are places in the world where there are hints of what it could be like. And so what we look at is uh, what are the things that are happening now, which will tell us how this thing could shake out over the next decade. So in, in 2010, we looked at the notion of what we call the turbulent teens. So how a decade coming up from 2010 onwards would be hugely turbulent, problematic, uncertain, uh, doubtful, but also full of opportunity. So we were kind mm. of um, anticipating two things, that the turbulence we were beginning to see politically, socially, push to populism, far right on the rise, questionable politics being discussed in, you, you know, openly on, on TV, radio, podcasts, etc. That that was actually indicating a bigger change happening in the culture. So then we we, we kind of had been mapping that for 10 years. And then in, in um, you know, when we looked at this decade, what we're calling, you know, you're looking at the 2020s, we said, well, two things are happening. One is a push towards transformation. You know, where, where people are now trying to transform the world. We're stopped talking about hybrid. You know, you think about what was happening with energy, what was happening with, with, with science, technology. After 10 years of doubt and challenge, and I, I think, you know, troubling questions have been asked, people were now embracing science. They were keen on, on technology. They were asking about, you know, truly transformative experience. So think about mindfulness, you know, think about what was happening with well-being, with, with spirituality, you know, with, with CBD. Mm. All of these things were pointing towards a slightly more enlightened and open and I think up for it uh, uh, consumer cohort. On top of that, we were noticing another two things. One was this um, need to build resilience. So we did a whole um, 
set of forecasts about why in an age when you'd had this kind of, you know, um, push towards safe spaces and, and, and you, you know, you had Me Too movement and you had this, this, this sense that um, to, to speak thoughts aloud if they were disagreeable was the wrong thing. And we were saying, well, actually, there's a counter run against that where people are demanding that we should allow these things to be spoken in public, that we need to be more resilient, but we also need to become more um, challenging about people who doubt science and doubt the climate and people who are, you know, opting out on the grounds of faith or opting out on the grounds of, you know, I don't want to get involved in these things. There's too much to think about. You're saying, okay, there'll be a really big uptake for people thinking about and participating in resilience. The other thing we looked at was this notion of how, uh, when we're beginning to question these things and challenge these things, how things like purpose would be re-questioned. Because there was a lot of conversation about brand purpose and about this mm. of, 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 you know, betterment and well-being and transparency. And we were saying, look, that's too simple. Because if we're entering a world of complexity and entering a world where we've got to ask more challenging questions and more with the science underpinning it, and more transparent in terms of responses, it won't be that easy for brands. So the other thing we looked at was, was you know, how purpose would fall out of fashion. So we looked at kind of post-purpose economies and looked at how people would increasingly insist on maybe about social betterment, maybe about clean capitalism, maybe about mutual collaborative improvement. But the sense was that that, that things were transforming globally. Things wouldn't be the same. And things like retail, which had taken a lot of things for granted, would be pushed to the side. So I think what, what happened with COVID, none of those things have changed. However, it was like watching petrol being poured on top of a bonfire. It has accelerated everything to the point that it has left most people that we were dealing with quite dazed, hugely confused, and in some ways kindly flummoxed. And we're saying, look, now is the chance. You know, if purpose isn't the way, what is the answer? If resilience is required, how resilient do you want to be? If it's about transformation and about this new sense of, 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 of um, you, you know, how we're, we're, we're more open to these great stimuli in the world, why aren't you now stepping up and taking part and leading rather than following. And I had this kind of image in my head. I was thinking, you know, if you think about the future, there there are two players in it. There's a pilot and the passenger. And I always go, you know, do you want to be as a brand a pilot or do you always want to be the passenger? And I think for the first time, you know, history has stopped Everybody is inside. It's like we're getting ready with the starting gun again. And what have we got? Brands sitting around and still waiting to be passengers. And I'm going, this is your chance to be the pilot. If you are not, when those other people break cover, you will be left not just on the wrong side of history. You won't even be remembered by history. So that's the opportunity we have now. And that's what mm. we're planning. And I'm kind of, you know, gagging at the bit because I'm sitting here waiting. I'm looking out at sea and I'm, I'm, you know, watching ships passing. And I'm just hoping that other people are not watching ships passing, that they're actually kind of thinking about doing something and getting on with it. So it's an exciting time. I, you know, I kind of the, the, the signs are there to suggest a whole new way of doing and being and delivering. And my fear is that clients are still hesitant. And history, as we know, does not like or welcome or applaud hesitancy. Mm -hmm. 
nicely, nicely put. I mean, it's interesting that I mean, taking that uh, a point, um, or sort of you know, building on it, as they say. I mean, it's interesting. So, yeah, uh, this week's, as in um, the new issue of the Economist, um, has on it uh, in terms of framing the future or framing where it could be going. Um, uh, the headline being a, a dangerous gap, talking about the markets versus the real economy, with a big split down the middle, a seismic split between Wall Street and Main Street in the U.S. I mean, I know until very recently. There's an enormous amount of talk of division, um, of inequality. Uh, you had writers like David Goodhart, who obviously was at Prospect now, Policy Exchange, who wrote that book, um, The Road to Somewhere, talking about you know the anywheres with sort of you know portable achieved identities being perfectly you know, sort of you know set up for the modern world, as opposed to the this is the UK point of view, but it matches certainly the US, I think, quite a lot. You know, the somewheres, so those who, who effectively often lived and worked very near to where they'd been born and didn't have achieved identities and therefore weren't mobile. I mean, what about that his issue of, as we go forward, as you see it, so once I know you mentioned one of the key things at the moment is we're all experiencing the same thing. We're all hearing the same news. Um, we're going to this massive psychological experiment but what about this issue of where it goes next in terms of things like division and unfairness and the great splits in society and identity? Um, I what is that? Yeah, I th- you know, the, the, there is this, you know, the opportunity is there. And if you think one of the great post-war labor budgets delivered uh, was delivered by a conservative government. You know, if you think about what they did in that budget, with that budget and that opportunity, you know, they were bringing into being a, a concept that, that, that even extreme labor um, activists could not have imagined happening, that we would look at, at you know, introducing a, a, a free default income for people, that we would, you know, uh, open up the health service in the way we open it up. We would build within nine days one of the biggest hospitals in the UK, etc., uh, etc. Et so suddenly what we had is, and I think it's a really interesting sign, it is an opportunity to show that when you bring people together and focus on a single uh, agreeable cause, then everybody can go in that direction. And I think what politics has lacked and what brands have lacked and what um, even consumers themselves have lacked is a singular vision that would help us to achieve such a uh, grand, great leap that we go, my gosh, how did we get here? And I think it's possible to do that because if we treated poverty and inequality as a pandemic, which it is, then why can't we do the same thing? You know, the reason mm. we don't do the same thing is because it doesn't suit our markets. It doesn't suit our current understanding of economics. It doesn't suit our, our um, method and approach to, to, to uh, capitalism. And that's kind of what this Western capitalism or, you know, the Eastern version. I think what, what uh, has happened is people are now willing to question and challenge those things, which is good. I think the second thing is there are more people who are understanding that this way we have embraced since um, the 20s is something that now can not just be challenged um, brilliantly, but intelligently and successfully. So we've now opened up these ways forward. So those lone voices, you know, if you think about books like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, you think about the Naomi Mm. Klein, you you think about the, 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 the... many books we've read on alternatives, these are now part of mainstream discourse. 
You know, that, that kind of mm. Orbiton window. We've moved things to the mainstream that previously we were nervous about discussion. What's more pointed, I think, is that socialism in America and in Britain and across Europe is no longer a dirty word. You know, people fully mm. understand it. It's not about a, a recidivist, uh, narrow, linear, closed view of the market based on, 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 on you know, capital... Um, sorry, government controls, it is an alternative to a market that has proved time and again it is a failure in terms of what it can do. So so what I think potentially moving forward, we will see more people breaking from the undergrowth and asking for things that previously seemed you know, mad, like universal incomes uh, seemed mad when it was originally discussed. Now it seems like the proper thing to do. You know, the notion that, let's say, within our health service, rather than continuously denying it funding, we overfund the thing. So that hospital, I find it interesting that the Nightingale has been decommissioned. Why haven't they kept it open for servicing minor surgery, for tackling all heart-related issues, you know, all kind of mid-range operations so that overnight you could wipe out at one stroke, you know, fuel the thing a bit more, but wipe out at one stroke all of those ailments and illnesses that keep the health service from doing what it does best. And I think that's where vision lies and that's where we should be looking to. And I think, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the current government we have will default back to the same old, same old. I'm not sure that Labour is in a position currently to, to, to kind of take up the the the, the um, gauntlet and run with it. But I think there is now a change uh, across Europe and certainly within, with the under 40s where these things are not just possible, but probable and I think potentially inevitable. So that's what could happen. But to mm. do that, we have to also make it easier for those things to be expressed in a particular way. Now, it's interesting if you look at The Economist, as you mentioned it earlier, you know, I look at the politics of The Economist over the years and how it's moved from extreme right, you know, or a kind of um, a fairly right wing American uh, mm. trickle down market politics to that if I didn't have the word economist labeled on the cover, I could be looking at the socialist. You know, the same mm. thing with yeah, the yeah. FT. The FT has just consistently become a newspaper yeah. of note at a period when the Times has gone to the right. The Guardian has become the most awful, irrelevant North London geography lecturers read for, for, <laughs> for the, um, you, you know, the, the, the slightly smug classes. And then all yeah. the paper sits around them. So I think it's interesting that those areas where we expected uh, you know, poor, muddled, um, market-driven thinking have actually given us ways to move forward. And I suspect if that's the case, economists are thinking the same thing, social mm. scientists, potentially uh, our future chancellors. So I think there is every hope that we may get this thing right and different after the lockdown lifts. Mm. Well, I mean, on that, cause, I mean, in terms of another character, um, Dominic Cummings. Now, I mean, you see, I mean, the energy, say, the, the intellectual energy seemed in the past, in the not too distant past, to be on the left. Um, and now, um, you know, I mean, everyone's got their own sort of political viewpoints. I'd certainly view him with enormous suspicion, uh, but no one can deny that he is incredibly bright and he does surround himself with maverick thinkers and all the rest of it. So um, have you not been, you know, he put out the great call a few months ago asking for people who genuinely were thinking differently to get in touch. Were you not um, 
tempted to have a word with Mr. Cummings, or perhaps have you? I have, you know, I, I kind of think about these things all the time. And one way I, you know, we have been crippled by a lack of innovation, by a lack of, 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 of um, counterintuitive thinking, and by also thinkers who come at things from completely odd angles. And I think Cummings is one of those people that has really reminded us about the power of um, innovation and about the requirement not to follow old patterns and to seek out new anomalies. But I still think there is a, there is a fundamental flaw with him in that he seems to be approaching it with the um, lack of that the kind of lack of empathy that you expect in the rational brain. You know, the kind mm. of when you think about science fiction and you get those kind of races like the Borg or the the Mekons who have got massive brains but are mm. unable to see um, the, the emotional consequences or the downside with what they're doing. And I think that, you know, there's part of coming to that. He seems to, you know, be slightly on the spectrum of whatever mm. spectrum he's on. So there's a, a sense of coldness there. There's also a sense that he is intolerant of challenge. So while I think we should be intolerant of of the right in the way that I am intolerant of them, I also mm. think the right has the right to exist. Where mm, of course, is yeah. that, that you know, with somebody like Cummings, all things being equal, he would get rid of opposition overnight because he doesn't see the benefit of it. So I think that mm. um, a, a kind of a, I don't know if you read you know science fiction like H.G. Wells and if you you know the books like Brave New World, where you got the the mm. the, 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 the a technocratic class who eventually take over. And the final scenes of the book is really about the battle of, I guess, the emotions and the spirit and, and, and religion and belief against rationalism and hard science and, and the sense that, um, purity of number as in you know the science of numbers is really the way forward and i think you know what i've discovered is when you look at uh, great scientists when you look at great rationalists when you look at 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 um the great innovators they had the power to be both there is no contradictions between science and the spirit you know the, there is no contradiction between what the left brain is doing and the right brain in fact each needs the other and there is a there's a great scene i think it's in contact the the um you know carl sagan the the, the movie based mm-hmm. on carl sagan book with jodie foster and she's describing she's sent she works out the time gauge she's standing on the other side of the universe and she's looking at this ocean as i'm looking at the ocean now and she is so mesmerized and the thing is so incomprehensible to her this great scientist she says quietly to the camera, they should have sent a poet. This note mm. that, of course, we realize that certain things that are so bizarre and so different, but also so what we need can be poetry. You know, the Enlightenment was about emotionalism and rationalism. The Renaissance was about emotionalism and rationalism. You know, if we think mm. about it, it is only in the 20th century that we've segregated the sciences from the humanities and push them further and further afield. And I think, you know, the, the, someone like Cummings is a great representative of that value system, intolerant of the adjective. But I keep pointing out to people, without the adjective, the sentence can't exist. So both mm. are needed in this kind of uh, movement forward. And, you know, while I think that, you know, the issues about uh, you know, poverty and the issues about inequality and the issues about, you know, gender inequality, uh, you know, can be solved by, by 
um, ensuring people have access to all of these things, they also need to be solved by understanding those things. And I'm not sure that, that you know, uh, allowing people or providing people with the same incomes or levels in itself helps people better grapple with the things that we need for the future. Because, you know, if I'm looking 10 years on, I'm going, so what are the things we have now that mm. are going to be useful to us in the future? And the answer is not a lot. So, you know, we also need to be careful that we're not just simply, you know, creating a society that, that is reflective of now when we're trying to build a nation or, or a Europe that needs to be reflective of the sciences and technologies and requirements of a planet where once COVID is out of the way, the bigger platform is still burning. You know, everybody's kind of mm. not talking about climate crisis because they're focused on COVID-19. Nobody's mentioned Brexit. So, you know, Britain has still got to face a second burning platform and a third burning platform. So, the, the you know, while Cummings is, is great, I'm not sure I'd trust the future generations or the success of my race to a man wearing a questionable hat cycling around London on a second-hand bike. Very good point indeed. And there's an excellent piece about that, uh, I remember, in the uh, in Private Eye about a month ago when they had, you know, they always do the, the diary in the style of, and they did a brilliant diary in the style of Cummings. But um, one point you mentioned earlier on, uh, Martin, was um, that phrase, the Overton window. And I thought it was very interesting how last year, Overton window as a phrase, suddenly started to be used everywhere and it and it tended to be used in the context of um extinction rebellion from the point of view of them you know exploding onto the public consciousness or into the public consciousness and and shifting the debate in a really really big way from the point of view of the climate crisis and an ecological emergency from the point of view of um that you know, enormous existential issue. Where are you at the moment? Because there's been, again, quite a lot of talk over the last you know, sort of few weeks about, well, you know what, you know, um, uh, that, you know, the sustainability in all of its sort of um, reference points was, you know, uh, was the thing that we were all talking about and big business was finally really focusing on as were governments. But now the pandemic's come in and quite a lot of people are quietly backtracking or walking away from the whole sustainable argument where do you think that's going to go business-wise and uh, policy-wise? I, I think it will be a uh, you know a short-term um, reset I think while we will have periods of, of you know hedonism and people will yet again want to travel etc uh, etc et we're going to see an uptake in you know car um, usership over the next three months and probably your cities will become more polluted you know there will be more uh kind of jet streams in the air etc etc i think what climate rebellion and what i think the whole climate crisis has remind us of is that the platform is on fire so there's no question or debate or doubt about it and i think also we now understand there's a fairly terminal situation unless we take quite uh, catastrophic and in some ways hugely um, counterintuitive leaps and decisions to get us out of this mess. How we do that, I think we have to look to use, um, you know, Greta Thunberg's word, we have to look to the signs. I think we have to look to those signs that previously people who would support the you know notions of sustainability and would support the notions of, of 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 kind of saving the planet would probably find abhorrent. So I'm talking about Gentech, I'm talking about stem cell, 
I'm talking about mm-hmm. biotech. I'm talking about the life sciences. So really, I also think that we need to wake up and understand that Cornish pasty shoes, organic vegetables, or growing our own in allotments, you know, in a bit of scrub ground outside the town is not going to save the planet. What will save the planet is an absolute jump forward in technologies that will have to bypass what I call the hybrids. So I'd still put mm. to say, you know, why the automotive industry hasn't just gone for electric. Why it hasn't gone for hydrogen? I know the reasons why, and I keep getting told this by our clients in those areas. But my question is, history is not allowing us to be incremental this time around. The thing is burning. We are dying. Species, hundreds of species per day, per minute, are being wiped out. So Mm. the only way we can save this is to to go forward with the kind of, uh, to use a a term that I I heard recently, unpalatable sciences that people like Climate Rebellion would hate to see being enacted. You know, I chatted to somebody recently. We were talking about, you know, it's great that there are no aircrafts. We need to keep them out of the air. I said, well, that's not, it's not just not realistic. It's foolish. And it is book burning of the worst kind. You are, you know, loom wreckers. Because you don't see the benefit of the book or the loom, you are happy to destroy them. So this is what you're telling me. There is no solution, no alternative. We should live in a medieval uh, age of farmers shuffling about with cowhide tied to their feet and living like what? You know, San Franciscan hippies? I don't think so. So we really have to be realistic about what it is we're trying to do and stop being foolish about what it is you would like to do because it suits your lifestyle. That's not the debate here. We're not talking about people who want to stop Oxford Circus on a particular day of the week because they never actually use it anyway. What we're talking about is a planet and a global catastrophe that can only be solved by signs, not by people sitting around a campfire banging bells and wearing funny clothing and telling me that my lifestyle is wrong. Mm. Okay, very, very interesting. And um, um, another point is a slight seek from that. You mentioned you wanted just talking about sort of, you know, a, a range of... Uh, Futurist writers and sort of science fiction writers, etc. The the Huxleys of the world. Uh, bizarre um, sort of facts. So Arthur C. Clarke, um, the uh, sort of obviously the futurist and, and uh, writer, his brother was a farmer in the village in Somerset where I spent most of my childhood. So unbelievable. So he's come back. Um, and so, you know, this sort of world-renowned sort of futurist would come back to Somerset and just hang out on the farm with his brother, who literally was the sort of at the, at the polar opposite of uh, um, the world of um, sort of uh, futurism, should we say. So one well, of those. You know, if you yeah. look at Clark, his, you know, his great, I guess he was one of those great, um, I guess like science fiction writers in Britain were slightly different. You know, if you think about John Wyndham, you know, he, he, like Clark, wrote speculative fiction. And I think yeah. why I find that fascinating as opposed to kind of more hardcore science, science fiction, H.G. Uh, Wells is another one to think about. Um, mm. They were thinking about optimum scenarios and what could happen and, and looking at situations falling together that pushed people along in a particular direction. And I think if you think about that's how good futurism works. You know, you, you look at certain anomalous things going on, you go, okay, so what if? And how would that happen and what would happen as a consequence of? And I think uh, a lot of the time, and that's why now is fascinating, because a lot of the things we're seeing are almost 
from the realms of science fiction. I mean, the fact that we now sign off emails and we say to each other quite blithely on Zoom, you know, stay safe. It's like a scene from Star Trek. It's like when they meet the ambassador from another planet and they sign <laughs> off with some weird handshake or movement in the air and they say, stay, you know, stay safe. So I find that, that, you know, we're on Zoom. If you think about 2001, that great scene where there's a really innocuous conversation between uh, one of the captains on, on Moonbase with his kid back on Earth. It's such a, such a bland conversation. That's why it works brilliantly. It's showing you that, that things like video conferences have become every day. And that's the bit I'm enjoying, is that I'm also mm. seeing how this extraordinary shift in our culture, the fact that we, you know, we have social isolation. Again, it's, just, it's like from science fiction. You know, the notion that, that, that we are willing to stay in and embed ourselves in such a way. There's a great, um, I think it, it, it was um, Asimov tale about, it's written from a girl's point of view about, um, I think it's called The Rain, where she never goes out because they've mm. just so learned to avoid rain that they now live in these enclosed communities. And therefore, the, yeah, yeah. You know, the pla- it's now way into the future when they've forgotten why they live in these enclosed communities. So I sometimes fear that maybe in the near future, well, far future, we, we, you know, people will we, we be safe will be a big catchphrase for, for um, you know, future governments. Self-isolation, social isolation will be the way forward. And uh, those kind of um, dissidents that we now see from different areas with simply people who want to go for a walk and want to go out and enjoy fresh air because we've forgotten what fresh air is about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about, um, again, I just noticed down a term you used, you said, so, you know, good futurists are all about sort of looking to sort of optimum scenarios and situations falling together. Now, someone that did the complete opposite of that, obviously, was the mighty J.G. Ballard, who uh, wrote about anything but optimum scenarios and situations falling together. It was all about situations, you know, perhaps sort of falling uh, either slightly or terribly apart. Um, where, where's your, where, where are you on um, on Ballard in terms oh, I, of um, well, I, again, prescient I, or not? I love, you know, I love his work and and a great fan of it. I really, you know, there are. It's like when you're doing scenarios, you always do the the the, the possible view. You do the the um, preferable view, you do the plausible view, and you do the unpalatable view. And I think he sits always taking you into the unpalatable. So he looks at you know the the, the inevitability of a sky rise is a community that is gated and self isolating. You, you know the the vulnerabilities of of people driving around in the cars all the time is they develop fetishes for them. So you have something like, you know, Crash. The, the, yeah, yeah. There's great books on, on, you know, he'd written about climate change long before we were understanding, um, the, you know, the nature and, and notions of how these things happen. And I think that that, again, is where the, the world building is so clear and plausible and believable. You instantly sink into it and go with the author. And I think good scenarios work very much in the same way that, you know, when you're creating them, like we do quite a lot of work for, you know, people like Diageo, um, mm. Investec, uh, you know, banks, retailers. And what you're trying to get them to understand is that, you know, the future isn't inevitable, but here are the ways that when you look at all the facts and you pull all the experts together and you look at all those kind of innovators and early adopters, you go, this is, this is potentially the path forward that, you know, is, is preferable. Here's a path forward that is possible, but maybe because of how you sit, you're not entitled to fit into it. You know, that's something that people don't want to hear, but you've got to tell them. Then you go, okay, you know, you think about uh, the, 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 the unpalatable. And I go back to that um, 
oversight committee, the investigative committee, looking at, at you know what were the reasons for um, 9-11 in America. And you know, one of the quotes that jumped out from the report wasn't to do with terrorism. It wasn't to do with, with politics. It simply said it was a failure of the imagination. What it understood mm. is that it was almost so unpalatable that we didn't want to imagine that the, the kind of possibility that this will happen. And on a smaller scale, this is what happens with innovation all the time. What happens with, with you know, whether it's retail or hospitality or whatever, it's where we just don't want to believe something. Like, why would you believe that people, given their their, their desire or, their, their, you know, the access to cheap, uh, blandly produced food would want to buy organic why do you think people who eat a lot of meat would suddenly want to become vegan? You know, why, for example, if you're Hoover, and we now, you know, there was a point we used Hoover as an adjective as well as a noun, you know, going to Hoover mm-hmm. something. Uh, why would you believe as Hoover that somebody will come along and create a system better than yours? We now say we're going to Dyson something, even if we're not using the Dyson. What Dyson did was they, they created the unpalatable scenario, which is that I'm going to lift dirt using centrifugal force rather than suction in the way that you know hoover and other manufacturers conceived it so it can be a little thing but each time it is where you're looking at possibility you're looking at at, at, at scenario building you're looking at the credibilities of those scenarios but vitally and that's the whole point about ballard you also need to consider the what if when things start going catastrophically wrong. But to do that, it has to build from a scenario that everybody believes in. You know, we believe in those big towers. We believe in, in kind of motorways. We believe, I think it was, it was millennium people like in shopping centers, you know, the, 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 the super can, you know, those terrible business parks. We all know. Yeah, yeah. And then gradually what he did, he built up out of them a really frightening scenario based on just how ordinary people become extraordinary monsters because they're re- reacting to something that absolutely locks them in. So if Ballard was alive now, I really would love to read the book about the lockdown and that mm. you know uh, enclave in um, a posh uh, you know, Notting Hill or North London suburb where things start going quietly but inevitably and dangerously wrong. Fantastic. I was with with Banner. There's a brilliant um, uh, one of the many interviews with him years ago when he's writing um, his book. Well, one of his books, uh, Kingdom Come. um, And uh, he said that I mean he's living in that the world's least interesting street uh, in sort of suburbia um, in in Kingston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and he's saying that he said one day he was just sitting there, uh, sort of you know reading while sort of drinking heavily. uh, And he sort of leaned back in his chair, looked out of a window, and he saw that his neighbour had. put up a flagpole um, with the flag of St. George on it. This is about 15 years ago. And he thought, where do you buy a flagpole? Uh, and then he sort of, then he wrote, then he noticed, he started to notice lots of white vans driving around with flags of St. George flying from their aerials. And it really freaked him out. So he had this great line there. He said, um, the M25 is a deeply sinister place surrounded by B&Q stores and attack dog kennels. Yes, and that's, that's <laughs> where you, you know, that, that in the way that Martin Amos will try to put these things together and it never quite worked because he was always too angry. You know, Bonner had a great ability to run two images together. You know, the, the, the innocuous nature of B&Q, mm. uh, where we do buy kennels, and the attack dog symbolizes a completely different sense of, you know, white supremacy, which, as we know, doesn't exist 
in the hardcore areas. It lingers and loiters in the rhododendrons of the suburbs. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he also the same thing. He's he's talking about um his local whatever um sort of shopping centre. I think it's called Bentles, whatever in uh, in Kingston. He said that uh, he really hated it. Um, he said it's a place I detest. Um, at that point, I think it was. He said it was closed for refurbishment. He said the Queen should turn up um uh, for the reopening and just say, I declare this department store shut <laughs> just not to let it reopen um but um sort of final few things about it um just to and it's been amazing as always martin um one of the points you talked about earlier on in terms of it's how interesting how certain thinkers authors um uh, specific books have entered the sort of the real sort of a uh, public parlance on both sides of the political fence and he talked about you know the great Marxist Naomi Klein, obviously, who started off with No Logo years ago, and then um, Shoshana Zuboff's book, um, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which obviously was you know, the big, big book of 2019. Mm. Although I have to say, I wrote about um, surveillance capitalism um, in my book, The Post-Truth Business, in 2017. I'll just leave that hanging there. Um, but um, in terms of surveillance capitalism um, and all things tech-lash-related, we can jam them together. What about that narrative that says... You know, a few years ago, um, you know, all of the the, the argument um, uh, or the debate was about things like um, Silicon Valley, in particular, Facebook being um, called to account due to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the data scraping and hyper targeting that led to a lot of people thinking you know, that the uh, what really got um, Trump over the line in terms of the first presidency. Um, meanwhile. Where we are now, um, it, with everyone being constantly on Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, actually, it's tech brands that have got us through the pandemic. And actually, we're also about to all download apps onto our phones so we can be tracked constantly in terms of the very, one could argue, surveillance situation that Shoshana Zuboff spoke about. So where do you want that tech clash argument in terms of friend, enemy and something to be welcomed or something to be very wary of? You know, so it's really um, one of the tough questions. Because I was, it's a bit like talking about paper. You know, I always go, paper is a format. And there are good books and there are bad books. There are good newspapers and bad newspapers. You know, sometimes papers use, uh, to, you know, to, to make great art, sometimes used to wrap bad sweets. So I think there's the whole issue about how we use the tech word uh out of, of, of context and how we just lump everything together. You know, tech is bad. We should challenge it. I think I prefer to look at the whole thing and say, okay, so what is it we're challenging? So if data can be used in a way that can make our health system more effective and spot and identify tiny anomalies that people can't see because maybe they're not seeing the right context or they're seeing them in a different place and not putting the clues together, then I want tech to do that. I want to give it permission mm. to do that. The same thing with, you know, if I can get away to fly a plane safer or drive a car better or produce food more effectively and eke out a, a, a better existing for the planet and tech can help me, then let it do it. On the other hand, I want to know what it's doing, how it's doing, why it's doing. Because I believe that that helps me make informed decisions about giving permissions. And I think where we, we muddle things is we condemn tech when we really should be condemning the transparency or the, the, the um, terms and conditions or permissions that sit around it. So first of all, um, 
I don't really blame Facebook and I don't really blame Cambridge Analytica. I blame people. We had for years been talking about how the data economy and data trading and data lockering will become a huge issue. And people were laughing. They were saying, well, why would you think about that? We don't have time to think about that. And because something happened that we disagreed with, we start blaming the brands. The brands are using the technology that we are all accessing and all contributing to and have all benefited from. So we need to really think about what it is we're trying to lock down you know is it we're trying to shut out these brands or are we saying there's better ways to use this and let's kind of better understand it people become lazy and while i think brands you know uh are are, are not necessarily sometimes trying to get sneaky things passed i think our lack of vigilance allows them to do it it's a bit like criminology you know somebody said you know why are there so many intelligent criminals in the world and the response was there aren't they're just stupid police You know, the problem we have is that we are assuming these technologies are clever. Let's assume the opposite, that consumers are deliberately allowing themselves to think stupid. And by doing that, then is there an argument that we deserve the worst consequences of our inaction? Perhaps we do. Or do we say, right, let's create laws that allows us to not be involved until we opt in. That's a simpler solution. So I'm going to click this thing. But even then, we opt in because we're desperate to get online to see porn or we're desperate to do this without really thinking of the consequences. So I think the the, the debate needs to be, first of all, what is it that technology does to our life? What are the good things? What are the bad things? What are the areas that we need to to, to kind of watch out watch out on? And then also, as more of us become familiar with it, um, let's just assume it's a bit like electricity. There will be a point where we don't really debate it. It sits around us. It's ubiquitous. It's invisible. And it's just part of, of, of kind of everyday things. You know, and I still have this puzzle where, you know, people want to talk about technology when you walk into a room. And I've never met somebody who wants to talk about electricity. And I just go, it's a matter of, of, of generational shift. You know, we just now mm. are beginning to take these things for granted and they're part of the culture yes they require oversight yes they require us to be vigilant yes they require us to be probably a bit more proactive than we are at the moment but also there are huge benefits and there are huge ways that technology can help in the way that no matter how many people we throw at a problem they will never come up with a solution so i just think we need to 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 be mindful of what it is. And then also, and here is a, here's a question just maybe for, for, for people to ponder. Uh, what does it matter if somebody knows what kind of food you eat? Ultimately, that's, you know, mm. what does it matter? And I go, people go, oh, but it does. I said, well, you know what? They, they know this when you look at your credit card. They know this when you go to a shop and you order something. They know when they see you walking down the street randomly munching a sandwich. So, The world is surveilling us, surveilling, you know, looking at us. And I think we just need to be aware that how we engage with it is the issue, not whether it should not engage with us. It would be impossible for it to live to live our lives off grid, which is what some Mm. people are suggesting. And and I kind of go, well, you know, that's your choice. It's not mine. It's like people who refuse vaccines. You know, mm. because they claim it's 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 detrimental to their health, whatever. Well, that's your choice, it's not mine. But there is a point where their choice impinges on mine because if my child, uh, you know, catches 
measles or mm. chicken pots or whatever because you have chosen your lifestyle i object to that in the same way mm. i object to people complaining about technology when i think i want to have access to this i want my health records online i want uh people to share my financial statements because I get a, you know, I get a little app that tells me how much I'm spending on X. Why are you spending this on Y? Gosh, Martin, you've had so much alcohol this year. You really need to think about your health. That is useful. So if mm. technology can do that, then I think I'm in favor of it. On the other hand, if it's using that knowledge to potentially penalize, you know, in terms of insurance, you know, doing, uh, you kind of, I'm not accessible to the health system because maybe I'm not paying too much attention to my health. Then there are questions about it. That's where we should be having the debate. You know, mm. not whether Facebook knows that um, I happen to like X kind of music or, or Spotify recommends other lists to me, because mm. it knows that I listen to country and Western when I've told everybody I'm listening to classical. Well, this is, there we are. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's context, <laughs> not content that we need to worry about excellent so uh, country and western excellent sir uh, things i'd never thought i'd hear you say uh, mr raymond well look martin that was absolutely brilliant thank you so much that was super That's interesting um so very good day. so just in terms of uh, just to be clear where people can track you down go on then um where are you on in the world of social media we are you can look at brain stuff follow me on brain stuff uh, the future laboratory.com which is 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 the um main business entity also lsn global which is lifestyle news global which of course as you know covers um most of the issues forecasts um snapshots of the future that we we look at and talk about and i just think um also we do quite a good monthly blog which is always worth checking out for not things i always say that are designed to make for pleasant reason, but they're designed to make you think and to challenge and to be genuine controversial because I don't believe, and I think this is something that we increasingly are tackling, I don't believe that learning comes out of acquiescence. It comes out of abrasiveness and challenge and being uncomfortable. And I think we've spent a decade of trying to make people comfortable. The next decade, this decade of transformation, will be about taking us outside our comfort zone. Because only then, as somebody said, only when you're in a plane and you feel turbulence do you realize you're living. The rest of the time we are sleeping. And it's time we stopped sleeping, Sean. Very good. Well, what can I say? Um, futurist author, journalist, and co-founder of the Future Laboratory, Martin Raymond. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a rating, tell your friends, and until next time, goodbye.